Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Gabriel Pages. I am now sitting in my car and it is on fire. That and more. But before that, over on Patreon, we are uploading a wonderful conversation between myself and Amy Salloway, who is an instructor for the Story Studio and one of everyone's favorite risk storytellers. And we're putting up a new bonus story by Mike Lawrence. Isn't it weird that Spider-Man, like, could never survive if he's outside of the city? Because, like, where's he going to web swing from? And I'm anti-heckling. I literally yelled out, uh, the comic book company is aware of that, and they addressed that issue in issue 267. <laughs> the commuter cometh, as written by Peter David. Um, <laughs> There is so much bonus content now over at patreon.com slash risk, and you're becoming a member over there. I mean, that is so, so necessary to help keep this show running. Your donations, we are just so grateful for the support from our fans. And if you'd like to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Snarky Puppy behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Breathtaking. Three really wildly different stories. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Tina Horn. Finally, we're getting Tina Horn on the podcast. Tina is the host of the Kink Podcast, Why Are People Into That? Her story was recorded live at the People's Improv Theater a while ago. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was shared by Gabriel Pages at one of our recent Risk live streams. Now, Gabriel can be found at gabrielpages.com. And John LaSala, our editor, added some music and sound design to the story. We've been doing a lot of experimentation with that kind of thing, where the story might have been shared live, and an audience was there watching, but then with that recording, we play around with it a little bit. So let's get to Gabriel Pages now with a story we call The 30-Year Fire. On September 1st of 2018, my Dodge Grand Caravan caught on fire in the parking lot of a Trader Joe's in Connecticut. I had just finished doing groceries with my four-year-old daughter, Ruby, and I was feeling pretty great because when you're shopping for your family, doing groceries, every trip to Trader Joe's is a slam dunk. So. I stuffed my minivan with my groceries, plug my kid right in her car seat, and get behind the wheel. When I turn the key on the ignition, the car won't start, but this isn't a surprise. You see, I had been driving my car for weeks with what was essentially a dead battery. I had recharged it back home before I left, and I knew it usually took two or three turns to get the engine going. So. I gave it another shot, turned the key, except this time I hear a pop coming from the engine. And I thought, huh, that's new. But before I can make any sense of it or even try ignition one more time, smoke starts to waft out from underneath the hood. Within moments, the smoke turns thick and black. And that very quickly leads to flames. I am now sitting in my car, and it is on fire. I took that as a clear indication that it was probably time to get out of the car. So, I unbuckle, open the door, walk around the front of the vehicle, get my daughter out of her car seat, and run to a safe distance because my car's going to blow up. You know, the movies, right? A car on fire blows up. Except my car didn't blow up. It burned intensely for like five minutes until the firefighters showed up and put it out. As I'm standing there watching the firefighters do the amazing things that they do, holding my daughter Ruby and mourning the loss of my groceries, I can't shake the feeling that on some metaphysical level, 
I might have caused this fire. I'm the oldest of three boys. My father was an orchestra conductor and my mother an opera singer. You can probably guess where they met. That afternoon, my mother had rehearsal and she took my younger brother, the middle one, with her. And my dad didn't have rehearsal, so he stayed at home with me and my little brother, periodically coming in and out of the apartment to work on his car. My dad loved working on cars and fixing cars. That was like his jam. He loved that stuff. So I'm sitting on my bed playing with a toy and I can hear my dad coming back into the apartment and my brother was near the front door. Then I heard a sound that's very difficult to describe, but I've settled on something that comes close. Imagine the express train or subway that flies past the platform as you're waiting for the local. Very loud and very sudden. Only the train is running down the hallway in your apartment. That's what combustion sounds like. Up close and big. As I start making my way towards the hallway to see what that sound was, time begins to slow down. When I reach the doorway, time freezes completely. Or at least I did. My six-year-old mind was faced with something so incomprehensible. It froze. Then I heard a voice, or maybe I felt the voice. The voice said, go, and I knew exactly what to do. I ran into my parents' bedroom, which the fire had not yet reached, stepped out to the balcony, and called for help. Within minutes, the neighborhood had found a ladder tall enough to get me, and they got me out. I learned later that my father had unknowingly brought in combustible fumes into the apartment from fixing and working on his car, and that the fumes had been ignited by the pilot light in our gas oven. My father and my brother were gone. And it was his fault. How could he let a passion or well, a hobby for fixing cars endanger his family? How could he be so careless? My father and my brother didn't make it. But I made it. And not only did I make it, but I was told that it was a miracle. My lungs hadn't taken in any smoke, and I had suffered no physical burns at all to my body. I was beyond lucky. I was blessed. But being this blessed comes with a price, because not having a physical reminder of the event makes it really easy to avoid or just forget the trauma and keep the event compartmentalized. And that's a problem. 
I don't need therapy. I'm dealing with this just fine, and this is no one else's business anyway. That's what I told myself for almost 30 years. Never mind my overvigilant paranoia with gas stovetops and electric space heaters. Every now and then I'd have the occasional emotional breakdown, but I handled it myself. I was fine. Then, about 10 years ago, I had a son, and I became the father. And deep down in the sub-basement level of my mind, a new narrative began to form. I became the father and assumed a role that would lead to a young, accidental death. I know it may seem like a strange idea, but this was the narrative that I experienced as a six-year-old. At that age, our brains are wired to adopt and accept the behaviors and beliefs of our caregivers. The lives and choices our parents make end up being the rough blueprint of our future selves. And if you throw genetics into the mix, forget it. We don't stand a chance. Now, on top of the occasional emotional breakdown, I had a growing anxiety that was created by an unconscious belief. My time was quickly approaching and history would repeat itself. As the years went on, this unconscious belief came out of the sub-basement and became a very real fear. I started believing that the weight of that fear would bring about the inevitable. But by now, I was really good at compartmentalizing my shit. So I didn't tell anyone. Except that those mental compartments are only meant to separate the trauma for the moment so that you may swim to shore after the shark attack, drive to the ER after knife juggling practice, or get out of the burning building, right? And one afternoon, that compartment that I used to stuff all that psycho-emotional baggage burst open and I broke down and I told my wife everything she held me closely and told me exactly what I needed to hear that I was my own person that it was okay to feel this way and that I would be okay expressing my deepest fear to the closest person in my life was incredible I immediately felt lighter at ease and empowered. I was in control of this. I saw my fear for what it was, irrational, unreal. And then the next day, my Dodge Grand Caravan caught on fire in the parking lot of a Trader Joe's in Connecticut. So, once the fire had been put out, I got close to take a better look. The hood and most of the engine parts had disintegrated. The windows blown out completely. Steering wheel, dashboard, seats, everything had melted. Like a G.I. Joe in the microwave melted. 
The fire captain told me that the fire probably got started from the dead car battery and that car fires make up one-third of all reported fires. Car fires are so common, it's amazing that the auto industry hasn't turned it into a feature. But, you know, to me, this wasn't another run-of-the-mill engine fire. This was my very irrational, unreal fear confronting me in a very real way. It's almost as if I had to choose not to die in a fire, to finally prove myself that I had a choice in my own destiny. Like uh, an immersion therapy provided by the universe. Because I was too chicken shit to do therapy on my own. Well, I know that sounds like a bit of a stretch. And the actual scientific reason why my car caught on fire is because I kept on driving it with a dead car battery for weeks. No metaphysics required. How could I let my avoidance of fixing my car endanger my family? How could I be so careless? I don't know if the universe has a stake in my personal development, but the event taught me three things. One, Trader Joe's will replace your groceries if your car melts in their parking lot. Two, cars aren't supposed to spontaneously combust, and if you're asking me, there's no better reason to buy electric. And three, if you don't deal with your trauma directly, it will deal with you. Thanks. Thank you so much. This is my first time at risk and my first time at this theater, so I'm happy to be here. Um, okay, uh, so here goes. So how many people, can I get a show of hands, how many people here have tattoos? Yeah, so you could scream also, get a little energy running. Yeah, okay, cool. So I have a lot of tattoos, and anybody that, that has tattoos, especially women, will know that uh, when you have tattoos, strangers feel entitled to the stories behind your tattoos. Does anybody else have this experience? Yeah. So... So I have this one tattoo of a head of garlic that you guys could probably all see. That for some fucking reason, everybody wants to know about the garlic. And I usually tell them, you know, like, fuck off, I have like a vampire ex-boyfriend or something like that. <laughs> um, but the actual, the reason that I don't feel like telling strangers the story, besides the fact that it's none of their fucking business, is that it's a kind of a long and kind of a personal and kind of dirty story that I don't usually feel like sharing with strangers. But I would love to share it with you now, if that's okay with you. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Applause will get you everywhere. Um, so, uh, so for the past 10 years, I've worked as a professional dominatrix. Do you guys, you guys know what that is? Okay you don't then I can't I can't help you <laughs> in eight to ten minutes um, <laughs> um, and I got my start in the Bay Area where I worked in a, a dungeon it was actually a house it was not below ground um, <laughs> uh, so a bit of a misnomer um, 
But uh, I had a lot of coworkers who would convince their clients to buy them like fancy lingerie from Imagine Provocateur and like take them out on to fancy dinners and fancy trips. But the thing that I always managed to convince my clients to do was to pay for me to go see other dominatrixes in the area and be dominated by them and then come back and tell the clients. So the clients wouldn't even go to the sessions. They just paid for it. And I'm, I'm a giant homosexual, so this was like a really great um, perk for me. Um, so for a while, I was seeing this amazing sort of legendary local dominatrix who was a little bit older than me, and uh, she had her own dungeon studio in Oakland, um, and I'm going to protect her anonymity, um, so you can't Google her afterwards. Uh, so I'm going to call her um, Mistress Madonna. Um, <laughs> And uh, Madonna was, um, she was tall and very, like, severe and always wore, like, expensive fetish gear and had, like, long red hair. So I would go, again, like, getting paid to go see this beautiful woman and sort of negotiate with her, like, what she liked to do and what I liked to do. And she would really push me, you know, because it was, like, fun for her to um, get to dominate uh, sexy lady um, <laughs> for a change. And it was fun for me to be dominated, frankly, because I was uh, you know, dominating people um, all the time on and off the clock. Um, so that was fun. And so I saw her a few times um, in her dungeon, also above ground. And, uh, and then, <laughs> and then uh, in, in New York, they're below ground, though. <laughs> all the dungeons I've been to here are below ground. Uh, anyway, so. Then after a while, I got this other client who caught wind of my little scheme and started to pay for me to go see this other dominatrix in the area who happened to rent from Madonna's studio. And she was more my height and kind of more like a bubbly, buxom blonde. So to protect her anonymity, I'm going to call her Mistress Brittany. (laughs) So... One day, Mistress Brittany and I are talking on the phone and negotiating our scene for the next day, and she says, you know, Tina, I feel like we've, uh, I've really been pushing you with all the things that you really like, and, um, you know, I was wondering if I could, you know, maybe push you a little further outside your comfort zone. I was wondering if in our session tomorrow, I have this idea in mind of how I want to mind fuck you. And... (laughs) Exactly. And, uh, uh, and I, you know, so th- this beautiful lady says this to me on the phone, and it gets me to thinking, like, you know, my objective besides getting paid with this whole thing is, you know, like I was saying, is kind of to, to be pushed um, and to experience, you know, to be, like, on the other side of all the depraved shit that I'm doing to people all the time. And also, to, you know, just kind of be like, 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong, right? Like, what's the, what's the big deal? You know, and I also, like, want to impress the pretty ladies, so I'm like, sure. So flash forward, next day we're in this lavish dungeon owned by Mistress Madonna, and Mistress Brittany is in like head-to-toe latex and doing all the things to me that she likes to do and that I like to have done to me, you know, and so she's got me like, I'll paint a picture for you, she's got me like straddling 
like a spanking bench, like a leather spanking bench, right? So I'm totally naked um, and restrained with like leather cuffs um, with my ass in the air and she's been like beating my ass black and blue and probably fucking my ass, probably fucking my mouth with a strap on and just calling me all kinds of dirty names and doing lots of, uh, lots of depraved shit. And, um, and I'm just loving it. You know, I'm like eating it up and I'm in, you know, what we call subspace. I'm feeling very turned on and very euphoric and uh, very uh, peaceful. When all of a sudden, the door to the dungeon bursts open and in walks Mistress Madonna. And Madonna is pissed. You can just tell from the way that she's coming into the room. And she's accompanied by a man who I have never seen before in my life. Very tall, dark, heavily tattooed, multi-pierced man who I will call Justin. (laughs) And Madonna just starts laying into me did I tell you that you could go see other mistresses and in my dungeon, what kind of a filthy good-for-nothing slut are you? And Brittany just joins right in and starts saying, you didn't tell me that you belong to Mistress Madonna. I can't believe that you're such a two-timing little trollop. And they just start laying into me and saying all kinds of horrible things about me. And I'm like, oh... This is a good mind fuck. Yeah. Like this is I see what you did there. That's really good, you know. Hats a professional like hats off. That's really I like that because you know, I get it. I get it. It's like overstimulating and like surprising. Like, does she even know that I know? I mean, wow, this is just so great. I mean, you know, okay, but it's really like more attention on me. But like, that's okay. You know, I mean, I I'll, I can I can take the the guest role mind fuck. All right. And so then, I hear this noise behind me. Now, as I've established, I'm like on the spanking bench and bound down, so I can't really like turn my head from side to side. So I hear this noise behind me, this kind of like buzzing noise. Now at that point I had several tattoos, so I knew what a tattoo gun sounded like. (laughs) Um, So so then I've started thinking, Wait. <laughs> maybe that thing maybe that wasn't the mind fuck. And then and then they start and then they start and then all three of them start saying this little hussy really needs to be permanently marked so that so that any time anybody pulls up her skirt or takes down her pants, they'll know what they're getting themselves into. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I'm thinking, okay, but they can't, they wouldn't. <laughs> they wouldn't actually, they're psyching me out, but they're not like actual, but I could hear the noise that the noise you hear it all over the East Village all the time right when you're walking around and so 
you know, I really started thinking, okay, I have a safe word. I had a safe word. Uh, and so I'm thinking to myself, I could use the safe word because I'm not sure if I want to be tattooed right now. Um, but, but I like didn't want to. And you know, of, of course all this is happening in like 30 seconds in my mind, but I'm like, I just, I, at that point, I had mind fucked so many people um, and, uh, and done all kinds of other things to people that I just, I wanted, they had put me in this place that I was always trying to get other people into which is this space that I hope everyone in this room who wants to can experience it at least once in their life where you're simultaneously completely convinced that these horrific, terrifying things are actually happening to you. And that these people whose power you're in will do the things that you think that you're going to do and then simultaneously you feel completely safe and trusting, and you want to do whatever they want to do for you. So it's this, I was experiencing that, and so I didn't want to say for it out, and I didn't want to tell them to stop. So it was right about when I make that decision that I feel this feeling on my ass. As I've mentioned, I had tattoos at that point, so I know what getting a tattoo feels like. And it stings, and hurts, it just hurts like a, it's just, you know, because the, the needle is just like a bee sting that's just poking under your skin and then dragging along your skin. So anyway, yeah, no, it's, it hurts like a motherfucker. And uh, so, you know, these three strangers are standing behind me and I'm feeling this feeling on my ass and they're saying, yeah, mark her up. Yeah, add some little like happy faces on it. Yeah, just you treat her like graffiti on a bathroom wall, yes. So this goes on for, I mean, probably like 20 or 30 minutes, but it felt like a long time. And then slowly, they all started, you know, they're like groping me and manhandling me. It started to turn into sort of more like sensual touching and their jeering kind of got a little bit more soothing. And they slowly, you know, they stopped with the, pain on the ass and slowly started to untie me and helped me off of the spanking bench and walked me over to the giant mirror on one side of the um of the dungeon and kind of had me stand and look and then turn around and sure enough all across my ass in giant bright red letters was the word slut And that, as I was staring into the mirror, is when they told me that a tattoo gun feels the same whether there's ink in it or not. (laughs) And if you tattoo someone with a tattoo gun with no ink, it leaves a bright, red mark that in a week, like disappearing ink, vanishes without leaving even a scar. So, that's, that's the story of my dungeon mindfuck. And so afterwards, you know, like I... <laughs> There's more. 
I gotta bring it back home. So they, uh, so afterwards, you know, we're all kind of like putting our clothes on and drinking water, and I, and I, I start to talk to, to Justin. I'm like, oh, so you must tattoo in the area. And he said, yeah, you know, I own a tattoo parlor in the Mission. And I was like, which one? And he tells me the name. And I said, oh my God, I got this work done there. Gordon, your employee is my roommate. And Madonna's like, you know Gordon? And, <laughs> and so I said to him, hey, do you have a card or something? Like, I would love to like come and get tattooed by you for real. And so a couple of weeks later, I went into his tattoo parlor. I don't think he recognized me with my clothes on. <laughs> But uh, then he smiled, and, and I said I'd love to get a tattoo with ink this time. Wink, wink, and all his coworkers are like, what the fuck is the tattoo? <laughs> and, and, uh, and he said, well, what do you want to get? And I realized I actually hadn't even thought about that. And, um, and so, uh, you know, he told me that he specialized in, like, flowers and plants and other organic things. And I said, oh, well, I don't know. Maybe what, like, maybe like a head of garlic? And so he drew, he's like, all right. And so he drew it and tattooed it on me. And um, that is the true full story of my garlic tattoo. Everybody's crazy in New York, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Risk. This is J.C. Cassis behind me now. As you may or may not know, J.C. is the business director of Risk, but she is also a singer, songwriter, music producer. J.C. has a new EP out called Four on the Floor. It's seven original songs J.C. wrote and produced Go to jccassis.com. You'll see the lyric videos, interviews that JC did about the EP, about this song, Everybody's Crazy in New York, and six others. And on all the socials, she's at jccassis. That's C-A-S-S-I-S. Before JC, we heard from Tina Horn. Tina is the host of Why Are People Into That, a kink podcast. She's appeared in Rolling Stone and Playboy, winner of two feminist porn awards. You can find Tina on Instagram at Tina Horn Sass. Folks, the next Risk online group storytelling workshop is on March 22nd and March 24th from 7 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern with David Crabb. Don't miss out. These group workshops are phenomenal. And David Crabb, 
as you know, is absolutely brilliant. He's one of our story coaches here at the show and has told some of the most remarkable stories we've ever featured on the podcast. At the Story Studio, we also work with businesses on corporate workshops. We've worked with people like Citibank and Pfizer and American Express. Visit us at thestorystudio.org. You will come away with step-by-step practical knowledge of how to build a story, how to move people, how to be heard loud and clear. There's all kinds of different training at thestorystudio.org. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. 
That's hellalma.com slash therapy60. Our final story on this week's episode comes from another one of our recent live stream shows. This one comes from Janice Matias. Now, there was some trouble with the audio quality of the recording, but you can still hear it plenty well enough. And then Jeff Barr added some music and sound design to the piece. So another very interesting little experiment here and a beautiful story by Janice. You can find her at JaniceMatias.biz. And here she is now with a story we call No Favors. homeschool teacher and in 1997 I get a call from my supervisor who assigns me a case of a 13 year old in the eighth grade and the only thing she said was she's very sick um, before we hung up she says if the case gets a little bit too much you can you know drop it now I felt a little bit insulted because I was well known to be very successful with hard cases so when I got to the um, these students' um, home, I was met by her mother, who only speaks Spanish. And in a firm, stern, Hispanic woman tone, she says, My daughter is very sick, and I think this is a waste of time. She should be taking this time to recuperate. But she wants home instruction, and I said it's okay. Well, I'm a mother, and I understood where she was coming from. And I said to her, well, let's play it by ear in Spanish. The mother leads me to her daughter's room and when I got to the door where there in this room was set up like a hospital room. It had a hospital bed, monitor, a feeding stand and there laying in all of these cover was this beautiful little baby faced girl with curls um, that was being held back by flower clips brown, beautiful eyes, and she flashed this smile that brightened up the room, and she says, Hi, my name is Ellie. Don't mind my mother. She's just like that. And then I said, Well, my name is Janice Matias Rivera. You can call me Janice, or you can call me Mrs. Rivera. But I, when I did look at her, I knew there was going to be a hard case because her face had a grayish mask which meant that she was really, really very sick. For weeks afterwards, I would sit by her bedside and I would read from her textbooks, I would take notes for her, and I would ask her questions. One day while I was reading her biology book, she turns to me and she says, Mrs. Rivera, is there TV in heaven? Now, I have a policy where I allow my students to express themselves. But I was taken back because I had not even thought about my own mortality, let alone being asked by a 13-year-old. And the only thing I could say was, well, Ellie, if there is TV in heaven, I don't think they would show Jerry Springer. <laughs> well, with that... Ellie let out a laugh that color just floated in her face. And then she said to me, 
Do you think it hurts when you die, Miss Rivera? I don't know, Ellie. Well, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to be an angel. And I'm going to come back and protect my family. And I'm even going to come back and protect you. And the idea that she was talking about dying was so unreal to me that the only thing I could do to cushion her words were to say to her, don't do me no favors. And and this was our running conversation. Every time she would bring up that she'll be my angel, I would always say, don't do me no favors. That led an open door for Ellie to express her feelings. Uh, she talked about, you know, Miss Rivera, I wish that I was like every other teenager and I didn't have to do this. But somebody has to. My friends stop coming around because they feel sorry for me. And when they do come, they just cry. Miss Rivera, I wish I had a boyfriend and I could do things like everybody else. And you know, Miss Rivera, when I get better, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to go to school. And she went on and on. And I wrote every word down. When there was bad days, I would just read from what I wrote and we would always laugh about her thoughts and her statement. And one day she says to me, Miss Rivera, you know, we should do a play. And I said, why not? I got a grant. I got with the um, Boys and Girls Club and we platformed her play called Pieces of Dreams, Childhood Memories, which she directed from her bed. The play got such publicity. She was featured in all of the newspapers, local newspaper. Even Channel 12 did two full um, episodes on her. At the end of the year, Ellie had become a playwright. She had finished chemotherapy and she had graduated. I held her and I said to her, I will see you next year. And she said, no, Miss Rivera, you're going to see me in the high school. And we laughed. Sometime during the end of July, Ellie calls me and says for me to come right away, which I did. When I walked into the apartment, it was filled with all her relatives and they were crying their eyes out. And there was Ellie sitting in a chair with this calm look on her face wrapped up in sheets and blankets. And I looked at her and she says, Miss Rivera, my cancer came back and it spread to my chest and my lungs. And I looked at her and she looked at me and I knew what that meant. The only thing I could say was, Ellie, what do you want to do? And she looked at me and said, Miss Rivera, I just want to go to Disneyland. I said, okay, we're going to Disneyland. I'm going to get um, a Make-A-Wish Foundation, and I'm going to plan everything. And for an hour, while all her relatives cried, we laughed about the idea of going to Disneyland, meeting Mickey Mouse, and eating fuddle cake. When I left, I walked out the door, and her mother stopped me and said, Ellie is not going to Disneyland. She's going to have another bout of chemotherapy and your services will no longer be needed and close the door. I felt emotionally like a torpedo hit me. I just, but I understood 
That's her mother. And I'm a mother and I understood. For weeks, I would call and her mother always had an excuse about why I couldn't speak to Ellie. After a few months, I stopped calling. One day when I went to St. Joseph's Hospital in Patterson, New Jersey, where Ellie goes, I ran into Ellie's um, nurse. And Ellie nurse was hostile towards me. She said, where have you been? Ellie is on hospice. She's down in a hospital garden. And that's all I heard. And I flew through the, the hospital like I was on fire. And when I got to the garden, there was Ellie in the wheelchair wrapped up. And her little beautiful face was swollen beyond recognition. I just fell to her feet. And she looks down at me and screams in a whisper, Where were you? I'm here now, Ellie. I've been waiting for you, she says. We spoke for a little while until the nurse decided to take her back to her room. And as I tried to get up and follow, the nurse stopped me and said, Only family members are allowed. And as they were wheeling her, I yelled out, I'm going to be here every day, Ellie. When I got home and I finally went to sleep, I woke up to an unnatural scream. That's all I could say. And it made me sit up in bed. And when I looked at the foot of my bed, there was a form. And the, the scream slowly faded as the figure slowly disintegrated at the bottom of my bed. I looked at the clock and it said 3.08. And all I could say was, Ellie. I couldn't sleep. I waited until 6 o'clock. I jumped in my car and I broke every traffic law to get to St. Joseph Hospital. When I got there, the receptionist knew me and I could see from her tearful eyes. And I looked at her and I said, did Ellie pass? She said, 308. At that moment, I was hit with such a wave of anger and sadness, bitterness. It just washed me over. And I hated the idea of God and her mother and everybody. It burned in me for a whole year as a cancer. One day I was working in New York City as a receptionist for a dance studio. And it was 11 o'clock at night and it was my time to close up. I'm in the office and the door is closed. And all of a sudden I hear a little girl's laughter. Now I thought it was my, my colleagues playing a cruel joke on me. So I started yelling, who the fuck isn't behind there in the door making all this fucking noise. And I opened the door and there's nobody. So I went through the studio thinking maybe there's a window opening, playing on my imagination. Nothing. I went to the door thinking maybe they got a fast one on me. The door is locked. I go back to the office and I close the door. A few moments later, I hear the little girl's laughter, but this time it's familiar. And I'm saying to myself, is it Ellie? So with a deep breath, I just yelled out, if that's you, Ellie, open the door. And I knew it couldn't be because 
It's impossible. You can't open the door. And then I hear my name, Janice, Janice. And with that, the door slowly opened up with the little girl's laughter. I was so scared. But at the same time, I felt this wave of tranquility, all that feeling of frustration and anger and bitterness to God, her family, and everything just slowly start dissolving. And I started crying. And then I said, if that's you, Ellie, don't do me no favors. Because that's what we always used to joke about. And then I hear the little girls laugh again, Ellie. And the store slowly closes. And the laughter slowly diminish. I don't know if it was real or not, but I know that it was a sign from Ellie that she's not angry at me. I did not disappoint her. And with that... With my tears in that moment, I felt like I was reborn. Expecting the worst Are you gonna drop the bomb or not? Let us die young or let us live forever We don't have the power but we never say never Sitting in a sandpit Life is a short trip The music's for the sad man Can you imagine when this race is won? Turn our golden faces into the sun Praising our leaders, we're getting in tune The music's played by the, the madman Forever young, I wanna be forever young Do you really wanna live forever and ever and ever? That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Becky Hill behind me now, and we just heard from Janice Matias, who you can find at JaniceMatias.biz. Folks, we have a very special event coming up on March 24th. Now, this is unique. 
It's a social event. We are inviting Risk fans to come on to a curated social that we are facilitating over Zoom. It's called Common Core. Common Core is a sort of event that was created by a friend of ours named Adrian Mulroney. What it is, is it's a facilitated discussion participants have one-on-one conversations over Zoom in breakout rooms based on provided conversation prompts, and I'll be there helping host the whole thing. It's going to be really wonderful. We did one trial one that was super, super fun. It's a great way to connect with people and have conversations that go beyond small talk that is wednesday march 24th at 8 30 p.m eastern and you get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour hey i'm brett podolsky co-founder of the farmer's dog we make fresh food for dogs we started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog jada when she stopped eating ultra processed kibble and started eating fresh whole food the farmer's dog food isn't fancy it's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs it's better for them and easier for you get 50 percent off your first box at the farmersdog.com slash podcast that's the farmersdog.com slash podcast also If you would like to work with me, do a little storytelling training, prepare a presentation, or maybe uh, get some advice on working on your own podcast or memoir or solo show, I am at KevinAllison.com. To talk with other fans about the stories you hear on the show, join the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook or look for our subreddit, risk podcast follow us on our socials we're at risk show on facebook twitter and instagram and on twitter and instagram i'm at the kevin allison folks today's the day take a risk Do 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 do